So this is one of those passages where as I was going through it throughout the week, it was kind of just like wreaking havoc on my brain and on my soul. And, um, and you'll see in a few minutes why that is the case. But before we even jump into the text, I want to start by asking a question. And I'm stealing this question from a scholar named uh, Craig Keener. And he would ask his students whenever he taught through this passage that we're about to look at, who is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? Who's the thief? You can yell it out. Satan? I can't. Satan? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Any other thoughts on who the thief is? Great. We're going to get there. I'm not even going to tell you the answer. Um, but you just wait, and we're going to get there. So, so this past week, I think it was Tuesday, I was driving my son to school, and we hit a bunch of traffic. Like, from the moment we jumped on the parkway, we were at a standstill. Right? It's the worst, right? And so after about 15 to 20 minutes, it finally broke up, and the issue was that there was a wreck on the southbound side while we were going north, right? Now, I hate rubbernecking, right? Who, who hates rubbernecking? It's the worst. But you know what? You should all hate yourselves because every single one of us does it because I would not have known about the car accident on the southbound side if I were not rubbernecking, right? So we're all guilty of it, and the reason why is because there's something in us that just draws us to chaos. We love reality TV. As kids, we would run when somebody yelled fight. Not away from it, right? We would run toward it. And all of us turn our heads when we drive by a car accident. Now, I try to use these moments to teach my kids something about being a careful driver. Nathan's only four years away from getting his permit. And I want him to understand that driving isn't a game. Now, in that same article I just referenced, Keener claims that in John 10, there's a wreck on the side of the road that Jesus is desperate for us to see. There's a wreck on the side of the road that Jesus is desperate for us to see. My hope this morning is that as we look at the chaos, the wreck on the side of the road, that we would hear what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Jesus is the good shepherd. And his sheep know his voice. But we are surrounded by so many other voices. Voices that sometimes even sound like they might be coming from God. But in reality, they are trying to steal, kill, and ultimately destroy us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 10. We'll be working through the first 21 verses this morning. And so to drop a little bit of a hint... When it comes to that question I asked just a few seconds ago, there is no division between the events of chapter 9 and chapter 10. So that's a hint. I don't know if that helps you at all with the answer to that question, but there is no division between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, if you remember, last week's passage ended with Jesus speaking some hard words to the Pharisees, that group of people who kicked the man who was born blind out of the synagogue. He said to them, because you say we see, your guilt remains. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Because you say, oh, we could see, we're good, our eyes are working perfectly fine, he said, your guilt remains. In other words, their pride has kept them in the dark. Their pride has kept them in the dark, which brings us to our passage. Verses 1 and 2, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, 
but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, right? And, and that you implies that he's still in a conversation with the Pharisees who were near him from verses 40 through 41. So, so the scene hasn't changed. He's still in conversation with the Pharisees. We, we tracking? This is important. Now, everything that follows, verse 1, is based on first century sheep farming, which means that John's readers and those listening to Jesus would have been familiar with the details. But from looking around, I don't know if we're all as familiar with first century sheep farming, right? And so, so a couple things, some of the details of what a first century sheep farmer or sheep farming would look like, and I'm relying on um, Bible commentator D.A. Carson, so the sheep are in a fold or a sheep pen. It probably makes most sense to think of a larger independent enclosure where several families would have chipped in to keep their sheep there. They also would have chipped in to hire an under-shepherd, someone to help manage the sheepfold. And those who were authorized to enter would do so through the gate, and they would be let in and out by what verse 3 describes as the gatekeeper. And so now all of us are experts in first century sheep farming. We feel good about that? Right? So, 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 so we're experts in epidemiology, right, because of COVID. We're experts in air quality because of last week. And now we're experts in sheep farming, first century sheep farming. So this is good. We're learning as a culture, as a society. This is really good. So check it out. There's two scenarios. I'm feeling a little, like, loose today, so I, I apologize. So scenario one, those who do not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climb in by another way. Jesus describes these individuals as thieves and robbers. The word for robber can also be translated as insurrectionist, which kind of makes sense when we see where this passage is heading. And then, then scenario two, Jesus describes the person who enters by the door, and he refers to this individual as the shepherd of the sheep. Now, first century sheep farming is the cultural backdrop, but anybody who hung around Judaism would have instantly been reminded of Ezekiel chapter 34. The G, of Ezekiel chapter 34. If you have your Bibles, I do have it up here. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. If you want to just look on the screen behind me, that's totally fine as well. Verses 1 through 10. Let me just read it to you. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God. 
Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherd, shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will not require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and they may not be food for them. That's a tough passage. Because what God is saying, he's saying all of you people who I have entrusted to care for my people. All of you leaders in Israel who I have entrusted with the care of my people, you have completely disregarded that calling. And not only have you disregarded that calling, but you've used it as an opportunity to feed yourself. What the prophet was communicating to the broken people of Israel was that their exile and their suffering, all that they were going through as a people, it wasn't their fault, it was the shepherd's fault. You catch that? It wasn't actually their fault, it was those who were responsible for them, it was their fault. I, I read through this passage, and, and I'm immediately reminded of a movie called Goodwill Hunting. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's about a young guy growing up in Boston who's constantly getting himself into trouble, trouble in school, trouble with the law. At the same time, he's like an absolute genius, like an incredible genius. And there's a scene at the end of the film where he's sitting with his therapist, who's played by Robin Williams, and Williams is reading through Will's file, and everything in the file is about how he had been physically abused as a kid by the very people who were supposed to care for him. And as they talk through it all, Robin Williams' character looks at Will and says over and over, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's a powerful scene. Those whom Yahweh entrusted with the responsibility to care for his people abused and exploited them, and they did it in the name of God with a Bible under their arm. That's what's happening here. And so after Jesus heard about the man born blind being kicked out of the synagogue, this is the parable he tells. And Ezekiel 34 is the passage he uses to make his point. Now we're going to further unpack that, but let's keep reading in our text. Verses 3 through 6. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, or this parable, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the parable. Right? Who is the gatekeeper? Who is the shepherd? Now, most of us know that in just a few verses, we'll learn about the nature of the good shepherd, but we're not there yet. Some have argued that the gatekeeper is a reference to the Holy Spirit, maybe. There's nothing heretical there. But what I think is more important is how this particular shepherd operates. And, and it's important because it's side by side 
with how the shepherds of Israel behaved. How does this shepherd operate? Well, this shepherd speaks in a language or a voice that the sheep know and understand. Shepherds actually did this sort of thing. They would have a specific call that they would use with their flock. And and the sheep would hear this call and they would kind of come out and you'd be able to distinguish who are your sheep. But also notice that this shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name. Calls them by name. And the text says that he leads them out. Think Joshua, who was called by God to lead the people of Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And notice that this shepherd goes before them. So he speaks their language. He knows their name, and he leads from the front, right? He speaks their language, he knows their name, and he leads from the front. In fact, this shepherd, this shepherd's not willing to ask anything of his sheep that he isn't willing to do himself. That's the kind of shepherd that's being portrayed, and that's the shepherd that's being put up against these Ezekiel 34 shepherds. And it's also the shepherd that's being put up against these religious leaders that booted that guy out of the synagogue, right? Are we starting to see who maybe the thief might be? Who the one who's seeking to kill and destroy? The point is that Jesus is showing us the nature of a true shepherd, of a good shepherd, not one who abuses or exploits their authority, but one who uses their authority to uphold those under their care. Now notice that those listening, right, it says it right in verse 6, they did not understand what he was saying to them. It could be that Jesus was still beating around the bush a little, maybe. It could also be that the Pharisees understood themselves to be on the righteous side of Ezekiel 34. It could be a mixture of both, but either way, Jesus isn't finished. Let's keep reading. Verses 7 through 8. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The text says that Jesus again said to them, which means he's just trying to make the exact same point he just made. Right? He's like he's doubling down. He then uses that phrase that we've talked about a few times throughout the course of our time in John, ego a me, I am. He says, I am the door. See, now Jesus is using language that the Pharisees, these leaders in the synagogue, would 100% understand. Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh, as God himself. Right? It's, like, it's, it's, it's almost, I hear it like this, like, oh, you don't get what I just told you? Let me make sure you understand. I am. I am. Do I got your attention now? He then says that all who came before him are thieves and robbers. One commentator translates this as all those who put themselves up in front of me are simply thieves and ripoff artists. I just liked that translation. I thought it was helpful. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus isn't referring to people like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others who heard God's voice and served him faithfully. This is where context is so important. 
Jesus is still talking to that group of religious leaders who kicked the man born blind out of the synagogue and refused to acknowledge the work of God being displayed before their eyes. He's talking about people who claim to lead and speak on behalf of God, but instead abuse those entrusted to them. Again, this is Ezekiel 34 stuff we're dealing with. And so Jesus is, Jesus is basically saying, you are just like the former shepherds of Israel who fed themselves, who did not strengthen the weak and the sick, who didn't bind up the injured or care for the strayed and the lost, who used force and harshness to rule over them. Those phrases right there are, are things that kind of like prick my heart. That these shepherds of Israel used force and harshness to rule over the people of Israel. And so I'm reading this passage all week. I'm studying this passage. I'm sitting in it. I'm I'm wrestling with it. And and the question, I'm like, okay, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? When I was in seminary, I had a professor who would, he would explain preaching like this. He would say, study the passage and identify and understand the truth, concept, or scenario. Once you're able to figure that out, Figure out where that same sort of truth, concept, or scenario shows up in the context and culture I'm preaching to, right? And so study the text, identify the point, and then land it in our world. And so the truth, concept, or scenario that's unfolding before us is simple. Those who are entrusted with the care of God's people use their authority and their power to care for themselves at the expense of God's people. Right? That's it. I'll read that again. Those who are entrusted with the care of God's people use their authority and their power to care for themselves at the expense of God's people. And so the first thing, when I figured that out, the first thing is is that I'm immediately struck with the weight of my role as lead pastor of this church. This week was hard. First, because I've been sitting in this text. And second, I watched a few episodes of that documentary on the Duggars. And without going into detail... Church leaders have a scary sort of power that can wreak havoc in the lives of people. Church leaders have a scary sort of power. And that's like, I, re- I sat there and I'm just like, okay, okay. And then I started thinking about my elders and anyone who might aspire to the role of elder or any sort of leadership in the church. Like any sort of leadership. Community group leaders. Redeemer kids teachers. Youth leaders. My challenge to to that group is to read Ezekiel 34, read John 10, sit in these passages. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to search out your heart, to convict you of sin. Do this by yourself and then do this with people you trust. Allow them to speak into your life. Beg God for humility so that you can hear criticism without immediately defending yourself. Because that's what we do, especially leaders. We, we defend our cause. But, but I'm begging us to have that humility, to allow criticism to kind of penetrate and, and allow us to become what God wants us to become. And, and then third, I, I started thinking of anyone in this room, anyone in our church who's in any position of authority as a parent in your marriages at work, if God has entrusted people to your care, Your job is to cultivate time and space that leads to their flourishing. And the way we do that has been beautifully modeled by our Savior. 
right? Beautifully modeled by our Savior. Look at verses 9 through 10. It says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. Right? So Jesus again uses the I am language. And he says that if anyone enters by or through him, they will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But see, the question that we need to wrestle with is how do we enter by and through Jesus? How do we do that? Well, the obvious answer, it's by faith, right? We know that answer, by faith. But faith in what? The object of our belief, of our faith, the means through which God is saving the world is through something that runs contrary to everything we're taught. It runs contrary to every single thing we're taught. And I'm going to say some hard things right now. Like these are, these are things I think we have to talk about because of who we are as a church. So, so, so it's faith, and it's, it's, so, so what we are to believe runs contrary to everything we are taught, especially for those of us who find ourselves in more conservative spaces, okay? I'm saying, I'm going to say hard things for a few minutes, okay? Remember my preaching lesson from before. What is the truth concept or scenario, and how does it apply to our context and culture? And so we are a conservative American evangelical church. That's our context and our culture. That's who we are, which means whether we like it or not, there are some things in our soil that impact the, pr the fruit we produced. And some of the things in our soil is, is some of what we talked about last week, right? A belief that a specific sort of moral purity will certainly lead to a happy life. Right? We talked about this last week. This can be described as the Proverbs are promises fallacy. We talked about this as, as, as this is ultimately a form of prosperity theology, that if I do all the right things, then everything will go well. That's a false belief, but it's been embedded in our culture. It just has. A belief that if we can only get back to the way things were prior to, say, I don't know, pick a date, 1965, then we'll be safe. This is nostalgia bias, right? We think that, that if we can get to a particular time in history, then we'll be okay. There's another belief, right? A theological belief that teaches that God is going to destroy the world, but first he'll snatch away all the Christians. This belief has led to, and it's all going to burn away posture, so why bother? Why bother? And then there's the belief that if we can figure out a way to secure political power, then the church will have the freedom to preach the gospel. And so we seek that power by any means possible. And so these beliefs are pollutants that have turned our soil and they've produced rotten fruit. Now, there's also beautiful things that have come out of our tradition. Right? We have upheld the, the proclamation of, of salvation by grace through faith alone. We believe in the importance of the church. We believe in holiness. These are good things. But coupled with those good things, 
there's been some stuff that has gotten, that has made its way into our soil that has actually wreaked havoc on the church and wreaked havoc on people. The point I'm trying to make is that the object of our belief calls us to embrace something very different than what those who came before, those thieves and robbers, those rip-off artists taught us. The door through which we enter, through whom we are being saved, is a door that is in the shape of a cross. And when we embrace that reality, that concept, that truth, that scenario, not only will we be saved in the eternal sense, because we will, but we will start understanding the language and the voice of our shepherd, which means that we will become and embody both individually and together as a church, pastures of love, mercy, grace, spaces where people have room to grow in their faith, where outsiders are not condemned for sin, but shown a life that leads to flourishing, a life marked by hope, not fear. Look at verse 10. What does it say? It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so the thief, and, and here's the answer to our question, right? He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus is pointing his finger at those synagogue leaders. He's saying, you're the thieves. You're the ones who come to seek, kill, and destroy. At the same time, He's pointing his finger at all of us reading these words. He has to be. Because the book of John was written so that we might believe. And so if the book of John was written that we might believe, even us some 2,000 years later, it means that, that this stuff, it's got to prick at our hearts as well. It's got to unearth the stuff that's in us. Individually, corporately, culturally. All of us who have embraced something other than the gospel of Jesus as the means of flourishing and hope in this world. All of us who have cast out the broken because of some standard we made up. All of us who have been shaped by the American evangelical world rather than by Christ. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The reason he came is so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Okay? That's really good news, right? He came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And that life is the life we have with God in Christ. And that, in, in a way that I kind of want to kind of articulate this abundant life, it's that it's filled to the brim life. It's filled to the brim life. And as we nurture it, cultivate it, give space for the Spirit of God to work in and through it, it overflows into the world around us. And those of us who are sheep, we're going to recognize that. We're going to hear that voice. We're going to hear that language. We're going to be able to smell it out. And so, so what I'm saying is that, is that in order for us to, to create that space, in order for us to create that time, we need to, we need to move toward God. We need to spend time, I mean, like, to, right, to be basic, right, to, like, go back to basics. Like, we need to spend time in this book. We need to spend time on our knees praying. 
We need to spend time in silence before God. We need to spend time praying with our brothers and sisters. And, and we're going to be doing that more. We're going to be providing more space for that to happen. Right? Pastor Tim sort of introduced a little bit of that this morning and said if you have, or, or not if, right, because all of us bring something into this room, right, like slip your hand up and get prayed for. But we need to create that space, that time, so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and that means we need to be careful of, of the other things we're allowing to shape and form us. Right, whether it's news media, whether it's social media, whatever the case may be, like, like the, I'm not, and so what I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we need to like completely remove ourselves from the world. I'm not saying that everyone should go out and cancel all their social media accounts, or maybe you should, but I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm wrestling with that myself, personally. I'm like, when do I just cancel it, right? When do I just finally just cancel it all? But that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is what is shaping and forming us? And, and, and the way you can kind of tell the thing that's shaping and forming you is if your life is marked by love, mercy, and compassion, or if your life is marked by fear, anger, and condemnation, right? Like, those are kind of the litmus test to kind of see, who am I? What's shaping me? What's forming me? Is it Christ and his spirit and his word? Or is it this world that's bent on on. on Stealing, killing, and destroying, right? These other voices, these other teachers, these other ways. God wants to do something with us. And he wants all of us. He wants every single bit of us. And so he's, 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 he's tapping us right now. He's saying, what, do, what are you going to do? Which pasture are you going to hang in? That's a, that's a good question, right? Which pasture are we going to hang in? Where are we going to feed? And we'll know. We'll know, right? Even like, right, like when, when you eat something you know you probably shouldn't have eaten, right? How do you feel the next day, right? Not so good, especially as you get older. I'm noticing this, right? I, I turn 40 and all of a sudden, like, I can't eat the same things I eat. I'm like, what's happening, right? Like, what, what happened to my 16-year-old body, right? Um, <laughs> But then when you, like, eat the good stuff, right, when, like, most of your plate is green, you know, and, like, you know, right, like, there's a palm full of protein, right, like, everyone here, here's your protein, right, the next day you feel kind of good. You're well hydrated. You feel great, right? Like, there's a spiritual sort of analogy there, right? Like, like what are we feeding on? It's going to show up in how we live our lives, Whose voices are we listening to? Whose language are we speaking? The text continues. And Jesus continues to further elaborate on this image of what God's kingdom, his sheepfold, looks like. Right, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. Again, that I am language is there. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for his sheep. Hired hands don't do this. I think this is true in most circumstances, right? I, I worked at Dunkin' Donuts as a kid. I was a good employee. Like I was. I was a genuinely good employee. I can, I, that's kind of like a badge of honor I wear. I was a good Dunkin' Donuts employee. I was, I was good at it. My boss trusted me. He gave me tasks that he didn't give other people to do. Like, he allowed me to, like, oversee things that other people wouldn't oversee. And I'm, like, 15, 16 at the time, right? Like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm a big deal. But the reality, if there were a problem, whether with a customer or a product, as a hired hand, I'm only going so far, right? It's not my business. Like, literally, I don't own the business. I didn't go to bed thinking about Dunkin' Donuts. Well, anybody who owns a business, if you're a business owner in this room, I bet there are plenty of nights throughout the week you go to bed thinking about your business because you're the one who's responsible completely for it. That's just how it goes. That's the nature of being a business owner. The point I'm trying to make is that the, the sort of sheepfold we belong to it's not one who's managed, not one that's managed by a hired hand, but one that is ruled over by a shepherd who knows us. He knows our name. He loves us so much that he lays his life down for us. Right? Like, that's, that's, the, that's the sheepfold of which we're a part. Remember, remember earlier in the passage, right? Like, he, he, he knows our name. He leads from the front. There was, a, there was a third thing. I can't remember. If I, but like, that's the sheepfold that we're a part of. And he speaks our language, right? I remember I was reading through, uh, in seminary, I had to read uh, John Calvin's Institutes, which is like this, it's a lot of, a lot of words. Um, but one of the things he says, he, he argues that how God communicates to us, like even through his word, is, is the same way that, that a mother or a father kneels down and, and speaks in baby talk to their children, right? Like, like, that's how, that's how he communicates with us. And so there is it, right? He speaks our language. He knows our name. Like, even that right there. Like, how many of you work for a company where your boss probably doesn't know your name? Right? But the king of kings, he knows our name. And he, and he knows it so well because he's actually, he's written it down in the book of life. I mean, that's the sheepfold that we're a part of. That's the pasture that, that he's saying, like, come eat here. And it's like, it's like, and again, I'm reminded of like having kids. It's kind of like when, when you say to your kids, it's like, no, 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 don't, don't have another piece of cake. Like, stop having cake. Like, have broccoli. And they're like, well, like, I don't want broccoli. But like, no, 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 just like, it, this is better for you. Right? Like, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, come to, come to my pasture. Like, come to my pasture, stop. Like, why you keep eating all that stuff? Right, but here's the thing, right? Like, I think for, for some of us, maybe many of us, like, what's coming to mind is like, well, well yeah, like, I, I shouldn't, you know, watch that sort of movie or I shouldn't listen to that sort of music or I should, whatever, right? Like, we have a list of these, like, moral categories. 
And, and there might be truth to that stuff, but it's the sneakier things that we have to be aware of. The things that use languages that sound like God's voice. Right? Remember, the Pharisees, like, they came in with a Bible under their arm saying, like, no, 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 I'm kicking you out of the synagogue. Or, or, or like, they, they dragged that woman out, right? And they said, what are you going to do with her, Jesus? Let's, let's stone her. Right? No, 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 we got to be careful, right? Like, there, there are those things, right? Like, the, the obvious moral things. But it's the stuff that sounds like Christianity. But it's actually marked by, like, some weird sort of, like, power trip. Or weird sort of, like, grab at some authority. And, and Jesus is like, nah, that's not my kingdom. That's not my pasture. Like, stop going there. I know it looks like it, but it's not it. My pasture, it's marked by love, compassion, mercy, peace, grace, forgiveness, humility, death. It's not marked by grasping at power. It's not marked by political, you know, moves and, and sort of things. It's not marked by, by, by lording over leadership over people. It's marked by all the other stuff. In fact, those people, right, we've used this phrase, they're borrowing or stealing tools from the enemy to do what they perceive as the work of God. And Jesus is like, don't eat there. Like, their Yelp reviews are trash. Don't go there. It's a bad place to eat. I'm all over the place. I'm sorry. Turn me back to Ezekiel. I want to read the next part of that. Starting in verse 11. And I have this up on the screen as well. Right? He just went in on the shepherds of Israel. Like, he went in on the shepherds of Israel. And he even said, I'm against you. Then he says this, For thus says the Lord God in verse 11, Behold, I... I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. That, that sounds like Psalm 23 a little bit, right? And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. We are observing, and we're living in the moment when the Lord God, Yahweh himself, searched out his sheep when he rescued them from all the places where they had been scattered. And the good pasture he's providing for us, the place where we are fed by him, it's what we get a taste of every single Sunday morning when we gather together as God's people, 
when we sit under the proclamation of God's word, when we worship his holy name, and when we eat together at the Lord's table. And it's here on Sunday morning, around the table of the Lord, where God has broken down every dividing wall of hostility, every man-made barrier where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are invited to gather. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, even that right there, it goes against so much of what our context and culture has taught us. The good news of Jesus is a barrier-breaking reality. It's a barrier-breaking reality. It breaks down the, the barrier between humanity and God and also the barriers we've built up between fellow image bearers. This is the nature of the kingdom. And it is the nature of who our God is. And if we are hearing and receiving messages that cast doubt on that reality, then we need to recognize the bearer of those messages as thieves and robbers, as rip-off artists seeking to undermine both the king and the kingdom that we claim to be a part of. Woe to the leaders who forget this responsibility, who forget this role, who use the name of Christ as an opportunity to feed our own flesh. Again, I've been trembling all week working through this passage because my desire for Redeemer Fellowship is that we would be a picture and an extension of that good pasture. That we might be a place where the sheep come in and out of, in to be fed with the good news of the kingdom, and sent out into the world, into our marriages, into our relationships with our kids, our jobs, our neighborhoods, embodying that reality. Let's read the response. Verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That first group hears a message like this, and their response is, this is demonic. This is insane. And maybe that's how some of us in this room hear a message like this. But if I can challenge and encourage you, hear the words of Jesus, not me. Hear the words of Jesus. Read passages like the Sermon on the Mount to understand what does it look like to live in light of the kingdom of God. Read that and then compare it to what we believe about this world. Read Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 6, chapter 9, and see God's holy vision for, for the household. See that it is a picture of mutual submission where husbands are submitting to wives and wives are submitting to husbands, where parents are submitting to children and children submitting to parents, where, where people in the workplace are submitting to one another. Like, this is the picture of the kingdom, this mutually submissive, humble, God-honoring pasture that we're called to feed in. This is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. Like, this is good. 
We, we preached a sermon series years ago now, right? I'm at the point now where I could say years ago um, on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and that whole series, the whole, the whole kind of concept of that is, that, is that, that God is introducing into the world an upside-down kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. But, but the reality is that, is that it's not upside-down for him. Right? It's actually how he is. It's in his nature. Remember, because of who Jesus was, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be exploited for his own gain. Because of who he is. Like it's in his nature to be self-giving, to be humble, to be loving, to be compassionate. It's in his nature. It's who he is. And so if that's who God is, then we need to embody that same sort of ideal as we march through this world. We just have to. And we can't be taken by all the other voices and languages that are being spoken around us. We can't be taken. Redeemer Fellowship, there's so much at stake here. If we are willing to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus, the forgiveness he offers us, then we are at least able to recognize our need. Jesus wants us to recognize our need, and he also wants us to recognize that our need is probably no definitely larger than we could ever imagine. But what this also teaches us is that the grace of God made room for us. The grace of God made room for us, and it made room for us through and by the self-giving and self-denying humble love and work of Jesus, who laid his life down for the sheep. Woe to us if we use this freedom we have received in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh. Jesus has so clearly shown us how he saved us. Right? You ever wonder, like, why? Why, why did he have to? Couldn't he have just kind of like, you're saved? Like, why couldn't he have just done that? Why couldn't he have just, like, snapped his fingers and, and all of our sins were forgiven? Oh, the cross teaches us something. Right, there's power in the cross because it is, it is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that our sins are forgiven, 100%. There's power in the cross. There's also a model, an example that is, that is laid out for us in the cross. Right, right, the ancients called this Christus exemplar, the example of Christ. Right? It had to be a cross or else we would have no idea that God is self-giving. We wouldn't get it. The cross shows us who God is. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? When I am lifted up, then you will know I am. When I die on that cross, you'll know that Yahweh was here. And again, that goes against every single one of our categories. Jesus showed us how he saved us. And he wants us to live in a manner that reflects that same love to the world around us. That's good news, Redeemer. Good news with, with some hard things, some hard words about a culture that we're all a part of. We are, myself included. Like I said, this week was hard reading through this passage, watching documentaries that maybe I shouldn't have watched because it really didn't do anything good for my soul. But maybe it did. Maybe it reminded me of something. Maybe it, maybe it challenged me in something. But God is calling us to something so beautiful. Come and eat in his pasture. Come and eat in his pasture. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, oh, Lord, we love you. Lord, I, I pray that, 
that the words I spoke this morning were words that came from you. And Lord, whatever was not, Lord, I pray would be disregarded. Um, that your spirit would take everything that needs to be heard by, by all of us, Lord God, and that you would, you would convict us of sin, Lord, wherever we might be struggling, Lord God. Draw us to you. Conform us to the image of your son, Jesus, Lord God. Make us holy as you are holy. Oh, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. Give us grace. Help us to walk in faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.